like the woman at the well, I was seeking for things that could not satisfy. And then I heard my Savior speaking, draw from my well that never shall run dry. Fill my cup, Lord, I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup, fill it up, and make me whole. Well, welcome to Faith Is on this fine day that the Lord has given us. And you have come to the place where we, every week, make every attempt to connect ourselves to God so that our cup, as the old song says, can be filled up. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and we here discover together some of the depths of meaning of faith, and we have kind of agreed on a working definition of faith, that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we trust Him, and we come to Him, and He makes us whole. I don't know if you're familiar with that song. I read the lyrics from it to start the program. It was quite popular some years ago. I think it's a little bit dated in style and language now. But the idea is still solid. And we're going to take a look at that story from the woman at the well, from the scriptures, from the story in the life of Jesus. And really, that's in those simple words that I just read to us, we shared together that those simple words is the essence of what takes place in the story. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in this story, a lot of stuff. But its essence is that there is a Savior sent by God to all of us, and He came to quench the thirsting of our souls, to fill our cups up, and in the words of the Bible, to give us living water, Water that continues to spring up to eternal life. And that's what Jesus offered that woman at the well, and that's what he offers you today. And so I invite you to gather around and let's take a look at the story from the Bible. Let's take a look at what God has for us today. From this very intriguing story, very unlikely incident in the life of Jesus, but it just resonates to us still today on so many levels. Now, it's quite a long story. And, and in some respects, and I don't think I overdo this, I certainly don't want to. In some respects, when you see a story that is given this much space in the Bible, it kind of makes you intrigued by it, and it kind of makes you wonder, hmm, what's going on here that makes this so interesting? And I do think it is interesting, and I do think it is beneficial, and I am absolutely certain that God did not give this story this kind of space by accident. This was purposeful, so we could learn from it, and we could have our cups filled. You know, as a pastor, and, and I am the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, as a pastor, my concern is that people find encouragement, refreshing, find the living water of life, as the Bible sometimes describes it, and as the story mentions it. Every week, week in and week out, I want people to, to come to church and to, and to meet with God and to hear God speak and to find that refreshing that leads to wholeness of life. Why would we follow God if we didn't think He could make us whole? 
We live in a fractured, broken world. Take a look around. People are, are just, well, to put it bluntly, people are just a mess sometimes. And along comes God that says, I can fix that. And he can. And he comes and he invites us to follow him. He doesn't fix it with a pill or a formula of sometimes. No, he says, orient your life around my teaching, my example, and follow me. That's what Jesus said. Orient your life around my teaching and example and follow me. It's a simple idea with absolutely profound implications and consequences. And it's a worthy prayer for us to begin today. Fill my cup, fill it up, and make me whole. May the Lord himself, by the time we finish our time together here today, bring increased wholeness in your life in a way that maybe you never realized you needed, maybe you never looked for, but wow, here he is. In whatever way you need him, my prayer is that you will find him just the way the woman at the well and all her friends found Jesus. So let's read the story. Enough talking about it. Let's get into it and and explore it together. Now, it's quite a long story, as I said, and I'm going to read all of it. I just don't want to leave any of it out. After all, the words of the Bible are far more significant than my words could ever be. So I'm going to read from John chapter 4. I'll start with verse 1. We won't read the whole chapter 4. We'll stop at verse 42, but that's still quite a lot. We'll share the story together. We'll think it through. We will... Um, like I mentioned last week, and I still think about a lot, we will think out loud together here on America Out Loud because we want to think and ponder and evaluate and then make part of our lives the words and the teachings of Jesus. So from John chapter 4, I'm reading the New Revised Standard Version, updated edition. Your English translation may be different. I encourage you to get one that you will read and benefit from. But let's, let's take a look. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. 
the water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You were right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, What do you want? Or, Why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever known. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to complete his work. Do you not say four months more than comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you. See how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that reaper and sower may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. And that's the end of the reading from John chapter 4, the story we usually refer to as the story of the woman at the well. It might go by other descriptions, but generally that's the idea behind it. And there is so much there that we could unpack, so many things. I mean, from relatively simple things like the play on words about water, where Jesus talks about living water, by contrast to water that was in the well that was right there in front of them, 
and, and we could talk about that some. He talks a lot about the disciples, about harvesting and reaping, those kinds of things. So we can't possibly get into all of that. But I thought we'd get into some things that are really important for us to, to notice and, and focus on just a few things so we could gain some better benefit than to try to try to do the whole entire scope of the story. There's just too much here. But the first thing maybe we should notice is that this was clearly a conversation between this woman that came to the well and Jesus. Now the focus is on water. It starts out that way. Jesus asked for a drink. And we don't tend to think of water in the same way they would have in the ancient world. And so we need to keep in mind that water was particularly important in their thinking. Now it's true for us. We need it to survive and they needed it to survive. But they didn't have ready access to water. We can walk into most any public building and find water. Well, they had to find water where water could be found. And in a rather dry area of the world, that was significant. In fact, when they built a city, started a little town, two things were important. Security, how would they protect themselves from their enemies, people that came to steal from them, to destroy them, and where could they find water? So this well that was dug many years before and is referred to as Jacob's well. And you can read that in the Old Testament and talk about that a little bit, but we're not going to get into that. But the key thing here is that they understood water was necessary for life in a way that we tend to take for granted. So they would seek water. And this woman seems to have come at an unusual time of day. Apparently she needed more water, so she went out to get it. So there were, the connection between water as sustaining life in, in that era, in that time, is important for us to get because we know we have to have water to live, but we don't think about where am I going to find water so I can live. They had to think about where can I find water so I can live. And so that well became that source. And when Jesus connected that to living water, that became the source of eternal life, that would have intrigued them in a way that it doesn't us. But we still get the point. The other thing we ought to think about is that it's really quite jarring that Jesus is here speaking to a woman. Now, I've heard people say, and, and I don't know that we can prove this one way or the other, but I come down on this side of it. People have said this was a very immoral woman, and that's why it was so shocking that Jesus spoke to her. I don't think that's necessarily proven in the text or from what we understand of the culture of that day. Life's Spans were different. The, the needs of women were different because they needed a household to, to, to survive. They couldn't survive on the, their own. They had to be attached to a household. It's entirely possible that the husbands mentioned here would have died because of the shortened lifespan and other things. So we don't know for sure what's going on. Truly, it is said that, and it's correct, that she was living with a man who was not her husband. But it's not clear whether she was just part of his household or what. So I think what we should better focus on is the shocking nature that Jesus is speaking to a woman. Now to us today, we don't think anything about that. Never have. Never has occurred to any of us that it would be unusual for us to talk to a woman. We just That's just part of life. And that's fine. I think that that's as it should be. But in this day and time, when the disciples found Jesus talking to a woman, that got their attention. Well, it's also interesting that in those days, a woman's 
word about things wasn't highly regarded at all. But she went back to the village and told people what she had experienced in her conversation with Jesus. They all came out and took a look. And the result is Jesus stayed there two days. Now that's important because some people make much of the fact that Jesus traveled through Samaria. Many times because there was real, real, real palpable tension between Jews and Samaritans that Jews would take a longer route and avoid going through the region of Samaria. Now, we don't know why Jesus went that way other than we know it was purposeful because he has this encounter with the woman at the well and he stays there two days. So we know he went there on purpose to reveal himself to those people. And that's significant as well because the tension between Jews and Samaritans was was real. It was racial, ethnic, and religious. They had very different views of how to worship God. And we get a little glimpse of that in this story when she talks about the Jews saying you got to worship in Jerusalem and our ancestors say you need to worship someplace else. Well, those were very, very strongly held beliefs and they were very much a source of tension. And of course, it's interesting and, and shouldn't go unnoticed by us that Jesus resolved that tension not by declaring them bad or the Jews good. He did that by declaring who he was and that what really mattered was the focus on him and worshiping in spirit and in truth. So Jesus kind of transcends these challenges, but it's no less shocking to the readers of that day, to the people of that day, to understand that Jesus was talking to a woman and a Samaritan woman at that. So that gives us some real interesting things to think about. And one of the things that, that we want to talk about so at some length today is that Jesus here in this very beginning part of the story, when we're just getting kind of acquainted with the setting, he overcomes significant divisions in that day. In other words, things that would divide people and keep them separated, like, like the Jewish people going a long way out of their way geographically to avoid Samaria, Jesus plunges right in, and instead of letting that divide him, that historic enmity divide him, he walks right into the situation. And he walks right into the situation and, and talks to a woman. So these divisions that, that men didn't talk to women, the division between the Jews and the Samaritans that was racial, ethnic, and religious in nature, Jesus didn't let any of that stand in his way. He plunged right into the heart of that, took it all on, and demonstrated how he transcended that. It reminds us that we should live lives that transcend that pardon me, transcend some of these, how should we say, petty things that divide us. Well, you might say, well, they're not all petty. No, they're not all petty. But what would happen, what would happen in your life and in mine if we stopped letting these small perceived slights get in our way? I, I like the idea, and I, I think about it more often than I talk about it, I like the idea of become pe becoming people that cannot be offended. 
you know, I've, I've noticed that it's, it's, a, it's just, I mean, it just blows my mind. I can't hardly wrap my head around it. How people, over the slightest little thing, they, they focus on that and they magnify that and they don't forget it and they, they nurture it and they allow it to become a source of, of real tension between them and other people. Uh, it's just, just kind of bizarre that way. So what if we could become like Jesus and we're not offended by these things that divide us? That doesn't mean we shouldn't face the things that divide us that are moral in nature, that are issues of right and wrong when the Bible says that. That's not what I'm suggesting. But what I'm suggesting is what if we were so quick to forgive when someone makes an offhand comment that we then take as something much more than they probably ever thought that it meant. Because how many times have you and I made a comment, said something that was just a passing thought that we never intended for someone to hear the way they heard it? And so don't we want to be the kind of people that don't hear things except in a way that we refuse to take offense? We refuse to be offended. I think in some some ways, part of what Jesus is teaching us here is that we should be that kind of people. I think there's more about that, and we'll get into that, because it, it is pertinent to our times, and we shouldn't overlook it. But first of all, let's make sure we do not miss a proper emphasis on Jesus identifying himself as the source that satisfies spiritual thirst. Now, there's a lot of play on words here, and I refer to that about the living water versus the well water. There's a lot of this kind of back and forth. And some of that we have a little bit of struggle to really grasp because we, we weren't in that culture. We have to understand things better. But I think in very simple terms, it's clear that regardless of the, of the little back and forth and of the things that we struggle to, to grasp out of the text, it's very clear that Jesus is saying that he's the source that satisfies spiritual thirst. And that when we come to him, we can be satisfied with the things in our life that tend not to be satisfactory. So that things don't drive us in way they shouldn't, ways they shouldn't, because we have a Savior who satisfies the most important longings of our lives. And so all of these other things are just crazy things, and we can put them aside, not focus on them, but keep our minds and our hearts aligned with Him and allow His spiritual water, His living water, to satisfy our souls. Because other things cannot satisfy, so why wouldn't we focus on that which does? And why wouldn't we, as I often say, put ourselves in the streams of grace? And that, again, uses the imagery of water. And so why wouldn't we plunge into that so that our thirst can be satisfied? We don't have to be driven by other things. I think that's very important. I think it's also important to notice in this rather short story that's given quite a lot of space in the New Testament, that Jesus is the one who knows us and loves us. I've been kind of fascinated off and on, uh, maybe more on than off, that, that people struggle with this idea that does Jesus love them as they are? Well, clearly he does. The Bible says that even when we were enemies of God, God loved us. Uh, we have some problems with that because we have a little confusion over what 
God means by the word love, but clearly God is for us. Jesus came to be with us, and he's not going to abandon us. He wants to see it all the way to the end of time, all the way to the day of the Lord, when we'll be with him forever. So it's very interesting that people struggle with this. People tend to think these days, because of this confusion about life and love and a lot of things, that that when you love them, then that means everything about them is just fine and nothing should ever improve or change or anything like that. They're just okay in all their glorious misbehavior or bad attitudes or whatever. If you love me, you won't try to do anything to correct me or to show me a better way. Well, clearly, the woman in the story encountering Jesus understands that Jesus has accepted her and loved her. But clearly, and she doesn't get upset by this, which is really fascinating, clearly Jesus is able to communicate to her that he loves her even though he knows that her life is a bit of a mess. Now again, what all that means, I don't know, but clearly in the simple description from the text that we read, she's had some very hard times, very difficult times. And, and so Jesus understands that, but it does not diminish his love and acceptance of her, but it also doesn't change his invitation to her that she should receive from him living water. It also is interesting that he is so quick to say that if you knew who I was, you would ask and I would give. And a lot of people, they, they aren't sure Jesus is going to give them living water, even if they ask. Well, pretty clear here that Jesus is eager to do that, eager to give living water to the people that ask. We just need to acknowledge that he's the source of that. So he knows her and he loves her and he knows you and he loves you and he doesn't leave our lives in a mess. He just joins in the process of fixing that. Now in our world, we need to notice something very significant here. I mentioned earlier that there were significant divisions between Jews and Samaritans, things that created enmity between them. Not saying that was the right attitude for them to have. I'm just saying that's what was. All right. One of the things that we tend to in church circles value is this idea of unity, that we should be drawn together. And I think that's good. I think we should. However, sometimes because we value unity, we fail to recognize division and what it comes from. We tend to want to gloss it over, pretend it isn't there, ignore it, hope it'll go away, those kinds of things. Well, those kinds of strategies really don't work. And I think part of what we need to do is we need to realize that division in our world or any world is from the evil one. And particularly in our world, we need to recognize that it has its origin in Marxist ideology. Oh, and there I go. People are going to say he's talking political. He's talking Marxist. No, I'm not. You can apply it in the political realm for sure. But I'm, I'm talking in terms of this idea of life. Now, the Marxists used it to gain political power. I understand that. But we forget, and we in the church trying to be kind to each other, nice to each other, forget that, that this was a very divisive strategy. 
It tried to pit the workers in a factory, for example, against the owners as though the owners were terrible to the workers. But today, in our world, it's been taken to a whole different level to the extent that any division will do. So if they can drive a wedge between people, that's division. And the people who operate out of a Marxist mindset and out of this idea of power and a continuing power struggle, they will use any issue, any means to divide people against each other, to disrupt life as we've known it in an attempt to gain power. And so often, this idea of division and this strategy of dividing actually results in them gaining power for themselves in ways that we find quite shocking. And I just want to make sure that we understand, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. We're coming up on a break, so keep this kind of in your mind, and I want you to think about this carefully. This idea of division cannot be lightly passed over in our day because of what it's doing to our world and because clearly going all the way back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden, the enemy of our souls, Satan, the devil, has used division to divide people from God and it continues in an attempt to divide people from each other. So we want to make sure we recognize that the roots of this in our current daily situation comes from Marxism that seeks to divide and to use that against people to gain power for themselves and ultimately results in tyranny or some kind of control. But we need to recognize this is Marxist. And this is from the evil one. And we need to face up to that and apply the message of Jesus, even from the woman at the well story. So you ponder that a little bit. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. This is Faith Is, and we're going to keep having faith as absolute confidence in the trustworthy of God, trustworthiness of God. We'll be right back. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it, or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all.
Welcome back. This is Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. This is the place where we challenge each other and stretch each other in God's direction, where we recognize that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And this is the place where we look at the Bible and think together about it and allow ourselves to grow in God's direction. So glad you joined us. We've been talking about the story of the woman at the well. We've been talking about some of the implications of that. We've been focusing on some of the things that really matter more than some of the other things that we could get into. Not that they don't matter. It's just that, well, we just can't do everything at once. And we've talked about a few of those things to kind of set the stage. We've focused on the one important reality that Jesus is the source of life of, that satisfies spiritual thirst. And we talked about how he knows us and loves us, but he doesn't leave us where we are. And then we began to explore this idea that Jesus' acceptance contrasts to the idea that so many people seem to push these days of dividing people one from another and against each other. And we want to we want to think about that a little more, more carefully so that we learn the lesson that Jesus teaches us. He overcame the divisions of his day. Now, there are a lot of divisions in our day. I, I don't suspect there are more in our day than there were in Jesus' time. Not, not at all. Uh, I, I sometimes am surprised people talk about how much worse the world is. Uh, you look back into the ancient world, man, and what a mess some of those things were. I'm not sure that it's any worse today. But I don't think it's any better. It just is. And what hasn't changed is that Jesus is the source of spiritual satisfaction. He's the one who satisfies spiritual thirst. We talked about this division idea and how he overcame it. And have you ever made a list of some of the divisions that go on today? I don't think this is a comprehensive list. But let me, let me read the list that I kind of put together thinking about this. What divides us today? Well, racial issues, ethnic issues, and we're still wrestling with the divisions between men and women. Same as in Jesus' day. Remember, the disciples were horrified that he was talking to a woman. We have these issues of transgender rights, if you want to put it that way, or people who struggle with their gender identity, and that divides people from those who, who are fully embracing of that as though that's just normal for people to have that, and we need to, to do everything we can to accommodate them. From people who say, no, that's not normal, we need to help those people and put their lives back together in a correct way. We have the whole range of issues that we generally refer to as LGBTQ+, and all of the divisions that re result from that. And really, what, what I want us to make sure we realize is that we are talking about real divisions in these situations. We are not talking about just disagreements. People use these things, all of these on my list, to divide us against each other. Have we ever lived in a time, no, we haven't, where there's been so much political division, and people are using political differences to continue to divide us against each other. Very interesting dynamic going on with that. We have regional differences in our country. I don't know that these are such sources of great division, but they certainly are differences of distinction, because you'll hear someone from one part of the country exp express something in a certain way. Somebody from another part expresses it differently. We have um, people in the South have kind of their own identity. People in the Midwest have their own identity. So we have regional differences. We have language differences still today. It's particularly acute in some parts of the world. It's, a, it's an ongoing tension in the country of Canada where I lived for a while. 
We see it in our world with people coming to this country and whether they have a willingness to learn the language and to learn to fit in, that's a source of tension. We have nationality differences, tensions between nations. I don't think those have ever gone away or will go away, no matter what people try to do. We have economic divisions, and boy, that's a big one, especially in the political realm. They want to use economic status to divide us against each other. We have, we have divisions of young versus old, and that's kind of a cultural value that we've tended to value youth over experience and wisdom of age. And that's a dividing issue. Remember years ago, some of you may remember, you don't trust anyone over, I don't know, was it 30? Well, we still have some of that today. And we need to recognize that this whole idea of division does not come from God. It comes from the enemy of our souls. And it has its roots in our present day in Marxism. See, Christianity is focused on unity. And Marxism uses division to try to gain power. Remember, Jesus is the one who said that they may be one. That was his prayer for the church, for the people of God, that they may be one. That's unity. There's a very significant verse in Galatians chapter 3, verse 38, that talks about this straight up. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And when people talk about how do we overcome the divisions of our day, And how can we ever get unified as a country and all that kind of stuff? Let me tell you, we get unified as a country. It's not complicated. When we all turn to the one who unifies. For all of you, Galatians says, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. When we become one in Christ Jesus, the differences, the divisions go away. Very clear in the scripture. It's not a question any longer of Jew or Greek slave or free, male and female. We are one in Christ Jesus. And the church is forgetting that. The church is trying in some ways, uh, hopefully not your church, by the grace of God, not our church, but too many times the church is trying to solve the problems of our age and when it comes down to division by other means. And the only resolution of division that I've seen in the Bible is for people to come together and become one in Christ Jesus. Years ago, I remember people saying, I don't think we use the expression much anymore, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So there are no divisions. We're all people. We're all people before God. And so I think we need to have a rebirth of that. And that's one of the very key things that that we might overlook in this story of the woman at the well, that Jesus, he stepped right into the divisions of his day. And he overcame them. And he says to us, we can do the same. We don't have to be divided. We can be one in Christ Jesus. And then the other thing that I want us to focus on today, uh, and we have to be selective, we've already talked about that, is that Jesus reveals himself as Messiah. He shows them his true divine identity. And that was really a remarkable thing to say in that day. There had been other people who put themselves up as Messiah. And here comes Jesus and says, I'm the one. And the woman becomes convinced. And then she goes and she says to her neighbors and friends, come and see. 
Come and see. And she tells them a little bit about what she's seen. Come and see. And they took her up on that. They went and saw Jesus. And they saw with eyes to believe. And they asked him to stay two days. And he did. And they began to understand that Jesus is the one. And Jesus does cut through all of the things that divide us. Jesus does pull us together and we become one in Christ. Jesus is the source of that spiritual satisfaction. And you see, when we find the source of spiritual satisfaction, then division doesn't matter anymore because we're not trying to one-up each other and, and pick up the, my way versus your way. We're trying to focus on Jesus who is the way, and we understand that he is the Messiah that came. And so I want to issue you the same invitation that we see in this story of the woman at the well. Come and see. If you're not convinced, come and see. Take a look. See if it's Jesus. I believe you will find. No, I don't believe. I'm convinced that you will find that he is the way, the truth, and the life. just becomes a question of, are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to give your loyalty and allegiance to Jesus? And that then becomes the issue. Nothing else. What will you do with Jesus? So come and see. Come and see. He wants to make you whole. To fill your cup and make you whole. Well, we'll get back a little bit to this in just a minute. But last week we started something, and I don't want to overlook finishing it, or, well, not finishing it, but continuing it. Because last week we talked about this kind of exercise we had been doing at our church for more weeks than I thought it would take. Uh, very, very well done. People took it so carefully. But we chose, as a church, we chose the 10 hymns that we believe every Christian should know. And so we did quite a process. I told you we had 143 ideas to start with, and we had to get that all the way down to 10. And we did. It was, it was quite a process. And last week we talked about number 10, which was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And now we come to another one this week that, that might surprise a few people. I found it very, very encouraging. And of course, I don't know if I would have put it on my list because I might have been afraid people wouldn't think it's accessible in terms of its musical style. But it's absolutely a terrific hymn. And I absolutely agree with, with our church's decision to make this hymn one of our top ten that every Christian should know. Well, the hymn is, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. You may and probably do have that in the hymnal at your church, if your church still uses a hymnal. You may or may not have heard it recently. The style is not the style of contemporary music today, but it is a terrific hymn. Now, hymns are both text and tune. Uh, some people have argued, and I agree, that you can't have a hymn without the text and the tune, and a hymn doesn't become a hymn till we sing it. I think that's important, but we tend to focus on the text when we do these kinds of exercises because we want to choose that which communicates something powerful and, and beneficial. And so this hymn, the text written by Charles Wesley, you probably recognize the name Wesley. Charles was John Wesley's brother, and he wrote a lot of hymns. In fact, this one originally had 11 stanzas. Generally, we only sing four stanzas these days. But it originally had 11 stanzas. And I'm using a small volume of Wesley hymns that I've had on my shelf for a while. 
And I don't know if you realize this, but they chose 164 hymns for this small collection of Wesley hymns. There won't be anywhere near that many Wesley hymns in your hymnal, I don't suppose. Maybe if, if it's quite the unusual hymnal. But they chose 164 from 7,000 Wesley hymns. That's a lot. And they said in the introductory material explaining how they made their decisions and what they did with the, the, the results that, that were published in this little hymnal. They said, choosing only 164 Wesleyan hymns from more than 7,000 is a bit like trying to choose the 164 most important verses of Scripture. And I thought that was quite interesting that they, they really struggled with that. But understandable, because it is difficult to put that all together. So let's take a look at the text of this wonderful hymn, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. We tend to only think about singing this at Easter. Uh, I have been saying in recent years, and you'll hear me when we get closer to that, that Easter never ends, and it doesn't. So I could sing this hymn anytime. But listen to the words. Christ the Lord is risen today, sons of men and angels say. Raise your joys and triumphs high. Sing, ye heavens and earth, reply. Lives again our glorious King, where, O death, is now thy sting. Dying once, he all doth save. Where thy victory, O grave? Love's redeeming work is done. Fought the fight, the battle won. Death in vain forbids him rise. Christ has opened paradise. Soar we now where Christ has led, following our exalted head. Made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. And those are the four most common stanzas that we sing of the eleven that Charles Wesley wrote. Now, you will notice I left something out that we usually sing. Originally, when he wrote it, he didn't include what we call the Alleluias. After every line of his hymn, an editor some time ago inserted this idea of an Alleluia. And they really do, in many respects, from my perspective at least, they really do bring out the, the power and the, the uh, soaring nature of this hymn, both in terms of the text and the tune. So, so when we sing it, we sing, Christ the Lord is risen today, Alleluia. We sing, sons of men and angels say, Alleluia. Raise your joys and triumphs high, Alleluia. Sing ye heavens and earth reply, Alleluia. Now, remember this. When, when I, we read a text, a hymn text, it's only communicating on one level. When we sing it, it's a whole different thing. And it's it's really, I, I'm, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but a hymn is not a hymn until it's sung. And that's really true for this one. You can really tell that because the power and the glory and the beauty comes through when we sing this hymn tune. Now, the hymn tune is, I don't know if it's used in any other hymns. It might be. It's, it's just such a striking one. It fits this so well. The title of the hymn tune, and I guess you're aware that hymns, have a title in terms of the text, but the tunes also have a name. Frequently, the tunes are named. And um, this one, in this hymnal, calls it Easter Hymn. And then it puts the, the um, 
number sequence to indicate the syllables and the way that falls so that that so that if you were looking for an alternative tune you can understand the syllables and how they would need to match up because a lot of times people do use alternate tunes and this hymn has been with this text for a long time or this tune has been with this text for a long time it came from a volume called Lyra Davidica and if you look that up and try to figure out how to pronounce it you'll find some other alternative pronunciations but this one seems most fitting to me best I can tell it's difficult sometimes to understand these pronunciation but it came from 1708 so it's been around a long time of course Wesley hymns have been around for a while it's probably one of the reasons that people say this is a hymn every Christian should know because it's been around for a while and we have come to appreciate what it communicates to us Christ the Lord is risen today and it's very interesting some people have pointed out in this hymn that that it says is risen today it doesn't refer to he rose back then it's he is risen and he is alive Easter never ends Christ is alive so take a look at this hymn it's number nine on our list as we're counting down to the top ten hymns every Christian should know it's very straightforward it's fun to sing it's a little bit challenging musically because of the the hallelujahs and if you sing the parts that a little bit melismatic that's a musical term for meaning there's lots of notes there but embrace it enjoy it revel in the idea that Christ the Lord is risen today and and do I need to remind us again probably don't but all of Christian faith rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus if he rose from the dead makes all the difference and he did the validation of Christian faith is firmly rooted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Makes all the difference. All the difference. It is a terrific thing. So I encourage you to check your hymnal. I hope your hymnal at church has it. If you don't have it there, you can look it up some other ways. But enjoy Christ the Lord is risen today. Alleluia. Well, turning our attention back as we kind of come to the end of our time together to this story of the woman at the well, we noticed a few significant things here. Particularly, we focused on three ideas that I tried to help us make sure we did not miss. There are plenty of other things, but, but we focused on the idea that Jesus is the source of satisfaction when it comes to spiritual thirst. If you want to have spiritual satisfaction, you turn to Jesus. We focused on the idea that, unfortunately, we live in a time when division is all around us. But we said, big idea, that Jesus knows us and loves us, and he doesn't divide against us. He doesn't want us to divide against each other. We focused on the idea that we should not overlook that the division of our times that pops up everywhere is largely rooted in the Marxist ideology and is used in all kinds of deceptive ways to divide people against each other in an attempt to gain power over you. And in a country that values liberty, we must not allow anybody to gain power over us, particularly by division. We talked about how all the divisions that there are today, and we talked about how Jesus is the only answer to resolving those divisions. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. 
And of course, then we reminded ourselves that, yes, indeed, Jesus revealed his divine identity, that he was the Messiah. And the woman went back to the village and said, come and see, come and see, come and see what I discovered. Come and meet Jesus. And they went and they saw, they discovered and they agreed Jesus was the Messiah. And he stayed with them for two days. Don't you wish you could have been there for those two days and wondered what in the world they talked about? What was Jesus focusing on? Because when you only have two days, and two days is quite a bit of time, really, you wonder what was important enough that Jesus focused on that. Well, we don't know that, but maybe we can find that out at the end of time. We can ask the woman at the well, well, what did you guys talk about for two days? I think that would be quite remarkable. Well, as I was looking at this story and I was doing some background study and learning about it, I came across the story of a man from northern Israel, Elias Shakur. And I hope I pronounced his name correctly. Elias, I'm pretty sure of. Shakur, I'm not as sure of. Of course, when you take English to other countries, they sometimes pronounce them very differently. So with respect to Elias Shakur, I want to tell you his story. He's from a small town in northern Israel. It's in Galilee, not far from Nazareth, called Ebelin. He's an Israeli citizen, but he's also an Arab and a Christian. That's not terribly uncommon in that part of the world, by the way. But it's interesting, and it's part of the story. He's an Israeli citizen, an Arab, and a Christian. He has also been the Archbishop of the Melkite Church. So he had quite a responsible position. And as part of that, he ran a school and a college in that town of Ibelin. Now, there was a quite interesting distinctive of his educational institutions. It was one of the few places in Israel where Christians, Jews, Muslims, and Druze students studied side by side. In other words, they were all welcome at his school. All Christians, all Jews, all Muslims, all Druze were welcome at his school. And that was really quite striking in Israel. And he said it had to be that way because God loves all Christians, all Muslims, all Jews, all Druze, all agnostics, all atheists, all Arabs, and all Israelis. So he had to include everybody. And wisely so, I think. Well, one evening he was telling his guest from North America a story. They were up on the rooftop of his house, which isn't uncommon there, and they were looking out over the same hills that Jesus walked in Galilee. And and Elias Shakur explained something to his guest. He said that in that part of the world, when people meet and get acquainted, they ask a couple of questions. And we, we might ask somebody, um, where are you from? I asked somebody where he was from this week and was surprised to discover that he told me Moscow, Russia. Well, that isn't what I meant. I meant what church was he from in the context of the meeting. And uh, he didn't know that context. He wasn't aware of it. I realized that later. But it was a delightful conversation to hear some, some about his story of coming to this country. Well, in, in Israel, in Elias Shukur's part of the world, he says it's a very common get acquainted question that when people meet, they say, say, what were you born? And the answer is supposed to be something along the idea, I was born a Christian, or I was born a Shia, or maybe I was born Lebanese, or I was born Israeli. That's the typical answer because people want to know some of 
what identifies you by those various descriptions. And Shakur said, whenever he's asked that question, he says, I always answer this way, always, this way and only this, this way. I always answer when somebody asks me, what were you born? He says, I was born a baby. And as he told that story to his guest, he laughed and laughed. The guest, in recounting the story, talked, said he laughed so hard that tears finally ran down his cheeks. And what he was clearly trying to communicate to his guest and really to all of us. In the love of God, there is no us or them. We are all unified in Christ Jesus. And in a world, part of the world, where division is so noticeable, he wanted to make sure people knew that Jesus brings them together because we were all born babies. Let's not let people divide us against each other. Let's find our unity in Christ the Lord, who is risen today. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. We'll talk again next week.